Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Industrial policy is defined as official policies to direct economic activity. And industrial policy is no longer considered an interventionist approach to governing. Countries worldwide give their industries and regions preferential treatment through trade agreements and other measures. So if the cat is out of the industrial policy bag, how should Canada respond? And should past failures in industrial policy act as a warning in the new economy and the fourth industrial revolution it's triggered? For insight, we turn to Daniel Schwannen, the Vice President of Research at the Institute, and Dan Churiak, Fellow in Residence. The two Dans don't necessarily agree on how Canada keeps pace as the country evolves in this data-driven world. Churiak says it's fair to say that the 180 on guiding the invisible hand of the market was born out of the 2008 financial crisis. I would argue that we are in a new economic era, one in which the new essential form of capital has become data along with uh, its, its major applications, which is through machine learning and um, artificial intelligence. And these, this particular form of capital asset uh, has got strong public good uh, characteristics uh, in the sense that it is non-rivalrous and therefore private sector investment would be under, um, would underfund its development. It also has got very powerful dual use characteristics, which demand, in fact, uh, public sector investment. So we are in an era where public sector involvement in the economy is now essential and not something that could be considered to be questionable as it was in the old industrial era. Well, I concur with Dan that we're in a new economic era. Uh, the you know digital technologies are transforming the world and require a new look at policies in, in general across the across the the board, uh, our economic policies and and others as well. Um, uh, perhaps you know similar to what the uh, arrival of uh, electricity uh, in the nineteenth century or oil had you know on our economy. So no question there we are in a new economic era. My caution about industrial policy is that uh, a lot of what uh, people might be tempted to do in the name of industrial policy actually is there to support the old economy. And so, you know, and in the old ways. And so, you know, when, when we're, you know, developing giant hydroelectric dams, as we did in two provinces on, on questionable economic basis, for example, in the name of economic development, well, you know, that certainly is industrial policy. It's not the kind of in industrial policy that we have, um, uh, that we need uh, perhaps for that new economy that we all agree is coming. Uh, that includes also uh, the green economy. So that's that's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, my worry about industrial policy is that now that the term is, you know, is, is, uh, is out of, uh, uh, back out in, in, in the open, if not in favor, as something that people are allowed to discuss uh, and is not poo-pooed automatically. And I, I absolutely welcome that, that development, by the way. But then the danger is that you'll take anything that you want to do, you'll apply an indus industrial policy label on it, and you're not going to think uh, through whether, for example, it's something that Canada can actually be successful at, given its comparative advantages, given global competition, et cetera. So 
Um, I think the world is changing. I welcome uh, the uh, new discussions around industrial policies, but I worry that we're going to get stuck into some old industrial policy mode that uh, that uh, really haven't been successful uh, in in the past. Well, then let's talk about what it takes to, to make success here, because as, as Dan points out, the new capital is data. It's often referred to as data is the new oil. Uh, we can't just simply apply oil industry policy to this new world. What are the tools that we should employ? Well, you know, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that I think industrial policy is, is is could be targeted to is the development, if you like, of our existing comparative advantages. We're strong in artificial intelligence. We're strong in communications. How do we put this together uh, and promote Canadian entrepreneurship in the digital world based on those two strengths? You know, we're, we're, we, we have a highly educated workforce. How do we do that? And in that sense, if it's based on the existing trends that we see, the booming digital economy, and somehow we have the tools to succeed, or even the firms to succeed that are emerging out of the Canadian economy, uh, uh, the Canadian uh, you know, tech, information tech landscape, which is quite buoyant. If we have all that, and yet we feel that we're not getting, let's say our share of, of, um, of, of jobs or incomes uh, in, that, in that growing sector of the economy that we could get uh, with you know, more intelligent, more targeted policies, by all means, let's examine what these what these can be. As long as we're not saying, well, the digital economy is here, let's apply exactly, let's develop some old sectors because industrial policy is back, right? So that's that that really is my worry. And you know, another example would be the the the, the green economy. But we have some interesting conundrums here. I mean, some uh, some auto companies are developing, uh, you know, as a substitute for the the gasoline. A combustion engine uh, are developing some battery uh, operated uh, or, or powered vehicles. Others uh, are betting on hydrogen uh, fuel cells. Well, now that's a really interesting question. What is Canada better at? You know, what should we help develop uh, in the, in terms of our uh, of what should be our goal, which is to maximize. Uh, Canada's ability to participate in these emerging supply chains, right? But we probably can't be good at both. That's that's just that's just a hunch. Um, so which one will we will will we really help develop? So those are the kind of questions that I think are really worth uh, discussing in terms of uh, industrial policies. But they're very precise questions, sometimes even very technical questions. I would come at this in a bit of a different um, angle, uh, Michael. And Daniel, I guess the, the term industrial policy as it was practiced back in the 50s and 60s was essentially infant industry policies for countries that were actually trying to enter mature industries. They weren't infant industries per se. When Brazil was looking to get into steel manufacture, it, they wanted to compete with the Germanys and the, and the US's and of the world. Um, but we're now in a real infant industry context wherein all the new products are basically being developed in innovation space and there are no established um, 
precedence. We're not trying to copy some, some uh, existing industry. So the, the context for industrial policy today is almost entirely around innovation. And innovation works differently than uh, replicating uh, old you know, industrial era uh, plants. It's not a question of building a car plant that will produce cars the same way that a car plant works in the United States. So innovation works through combinatorial economics or combinatorial networks. If you think about um, how, if, to give you a simple example, if you take uh, lights and baseball and combine them, you get night baseball. And night baseball has completely different economics than day baseball because all of a sudden, all the people working in the factories during the daytime can go off to the ballpark in the evening. So when they were introduced by um, uh, in, in Wrigley Field back in the 1930s, they revolutionized the sport as an, as an economic entity. So a combination of existing ideas is how things move forward. If you take, for example, uh, the silicon chip and the internet, both of which were produced by U.S. defense spending, you combine them and you get Google. Uh, a purely private sector entity. So the pathway towards a private sector economy in the new innovation space may require all sorts of government activity, which is not of the traditional sort that was sanctioned by the OECD, building, um, you know, sort of infrastructure, the dams that Dan was talking about, we, Daniel was talking about, which may or may not be economically viable, but they are basic infrastructure. Right now, it's about building combinatorial networks of companies. And so when we think about, for example, industrial policy into the AI space, we would be thinking about for direct investment, how different it is when a Google or a Microsoft comes into Montreal and buys out one of Canada's leading AI firms, um, Maluba, and takes its chief scientist, Joshua Bengio, off to Redmond uh, in Washington. So now Bengio is having his um, coffees and his uh, dinners and conversations in the United States, not in Montreal. And as you know, in Silicon Valley, they say most new companies are started over coffee at Starbucks. So you lose something which is very valuable now for your innovation economy. Uh, so you think about this economy very differently as to what is required in terms of government intervention, which would then fall into, into the category of industrial policy, but not the traditional policy that, that Daniel was mentioning. Another really important feature of it is the issue of value capture. Now, in, 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 in the traditional economy, Canada was oftentimes characterized as a draw of water and a hewer of wood. And we were basically, the, we were the wage um, sort of, you know, grunts in, in, in the global economy, earning a decent living out of this thing, but not capturing the intellectual property, uh, and the, uh, both in terms of R&D, the patents, and in terms of brands. All of that really valuable activity flowed outside of Canada. And we know from uh, Stan Shee's uh, smile curve, was, Stan Shee was the, the CEO of, of Acer in Taiwan, and he pointed out Taiwan was specializing at this uh, sort of low rent 
activity of uh, standardized uh, industrial products and standardized services. And what Taiwan really wanted to do to get wealthy was to move up the, the uh, edges of the smile curve and capture the R&D and patents and the branding and so forth. So that's what Canada needs to do as well in the world of the data-driven economy. And so then the final point I would make about the nature of government intervention uh, concerns the convening power of government. And Daniel was talking about a number of things like green, the green economy, for example, electric vehicles. Each one of these to be a success for the private sector providers of vehicles or batteries or services, oftentimes requires a massive new infrastructure. And that is where the government has to com uh, come in. And so working with the, um, the assets that we have in Canada, which are our firms, our firms are our, our, our technology assets. We have to say, what is feasible for us? How do we engage in this economy? And the government may have to make some bets whether it's hydrogen, whether it's you know a different kind of lithium-ion uh, battery chargers, we have to make some bets as to what we can, can contribute and how we will profit. So I think those are three very different ways in which the modern innovation-intensive uh, data-driven economy differs from the old traditional economy, and therefore, you know how it reshapes what we think of as industrial policy. But industrial policy and strategy are two very different things. Do we rely on the political class to make the decision about whether or not, say, the automotive industry in this country focuses on hydrogen fuel cells versus lithium-ion batteries? Well, here I would jump in and say, where does the private sector get its information when it makes its strategic bets? They talk to the industries, they talk to the scientists, they read the news. Um, the political class in Canada cannot make this decision in, out of, you know, sort of its own uh, sort of brainstorming uh, in center block. It needs to be talking to uh, industry. It needs to be uh, on top of developments globally. It needs to know what, what uh, our, uh, the partnerships that Canada has with the United States, for example, in the security area, what they dictate in terms of where we go as well. This is not a, a, a neat, simple world for the private sector to go and, and uh, explore extensively and find some nice new products to choose, to develop. It's a world where new infrastructures, new coordination is required. And this, by the way, is a classic uh, um, uh, uh, sort of motivation for industrial policy is the coordination problem. You know, if you need dozens of different firms all innovating in the same kind of or complementary uh, fashions to make a new set of activities work, then who convenes that? It's got to be the government. Yeah, well, I mean, completely. I mean, that's that's how the big Japanese automakers uh, got together in World War II. Is like, there's too many of you guys. Uh, let's let's combine some forces, right? And uh, now, you know, one of the points here is that Japan or the United States or the European European Union are rather larger markets uh, than uh, than than Canada. And you know, part of our industrial policy has to we have to have a look at how we can compete uh, if we're going to invest massively uh, as you know in 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 new technologies. Not just how we're going to compete. That's almost in a sense, I mean, Dan was talking about cooperation. That's almost, in a sense, an old-fashioned word. Word. It's more like, how are we going to fit in these supply chains? What's going to be our contribution? What firm, uh, you know, we don't produce uh, the Pfizer uh, vaccine in Canada, 
but we have a Canadian firm out on the West Coast that is absolutely crucial to the production of that vaccine, right? And that's our that's our comparative advantage, and that is also our bargaining power. It, we, you know, we don't have to be. It doesn't have to be like a big front uh, window, right? Uh, so we could we 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 can be very very. Uh, efficient at the back end, and that could be part of our uh, industrial strategy. You know, I'll, I'll agree with Dan uh, very much. Uh, the point he was making about uh, government procurement. You know, we have in in healthcare, for example, uh, which is which is mostly public. Our, our hospitals, the procurement system, absolutely notorious for 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 being you know uh, riddled with with red tape, red tape and specifying what technology they exactly want as opposed to what outcome they want, which promotes, wow, okay, here, send me some ideas rather than the exact product that I'm describing. So to me, whether it's that sector or in defense procurement, where I think Canada is, uh, is uh, not doing as well, frankly, as even some smaller nations in terms of turning that procurement into some you know, technology uh, you know, an ability to test Canadian technologies, which is absolutely necessary to scale them up and so on. Absolutely agree 100%. I would even say that when you look at questions of, you know, security of supply chain like we're doing now with protective equipment, for example, personal protective equipment, uh, you know, you 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 have to draw a lesson from from that or from the trade war with Donald Trump, you know, who's trying to kill your steel industry. Yeah, maybe sometimes you need to support these sectors when they're under attack, or if it's a question of safety or security of supply, there's always a role there. And um, where I'm maybe not agreeing with Dan uh, uh, is on this idea that we need these national champions, you know, as uh, that are let's say as big as the other guy, or we don't want our, a, a large foreign firm to acquire some of our local firm. I can see, I can, I can see that. Um, as, uh, well, actually, I don't see it. I don't see it as as preventing the emergence of Canadian firms. You know, when when BlackBerry, uh, or rather RIM at the time, um, you know, I live in, uh, in Kitchener, Ontario, when they met with the difficulties they met with, uh, which I think were, you know, this was a big Canadian company, and like some other big Canadian companies before, they don't always meet with success, which is one of the lessons of this industrial policy. But in this case, uh, what I mean is that when they had to lay off the thousands of people they did, some went back to the U.S., but others were hired by the many hundreds here by Google and, and, and by some of the U.S. tech giants. And that then allowed the brains to stay here. And what you have is even locally some brain circulation. Then those people leave and start Canadian companies. So what I'm trying to say is that this, uh, and some of which are growing fast and are very successful. So what I'm trying to say is that this brain and capital circulation doesn't just happen one way uh, and that we benefit from the ecosystem that is often, uh, you know, uh, or at least of which well, let's call it even sometimes dominated by large giants, right? So I think it allows us to develop our skills here uh, in Canada. I'm, I appreciate the fact that some people want to keep our scientists here and our intellectual property here. And I would agree with that, but I would say let's then at least, you know, to some extent that, that's, that's valuable, but let's then try to address our other big problem, which is one of entrepreneurship 
and growth of Canadian companies. And let's not always blame that on the presence of large foreign companies. That would be my little spiel on that. Dan Daniel brought up an interesting point about vaccines um, and that there is a Canadian company that's crucial to the development uh, of ensuring that we've got this COVID-19 vaccine. What, though, of vaccine nationalism? You know, when it comes to industrial policy, I think many Canadians were blindsided to learn that we couldn't produce the COVID-19 vaccine in its entirety here. Is there are there certain circumstances where we need to engage not in soft industrial policy, but in hard industrial policy? So the vaccine nationalism actually is is a good example of why not to actually engage in industrial policy, because it's the the actual production of of the vaccine itself does require its traditional value chains, which are global in nature. And this is a well-trod area for industry. It doesn't require government intervention. When governments got involved, it was in very unhelpful ways of trying to grant the product for themselves. It was hoarding activity by the governments that created the problem in the first place. And then we say, oh, because the governments were hoarding, now we need governments to get involved in producing uh, national uh, production systems for this thing so that we can't be affected by other governments hoarding. What we really need in this case is, is what the European Union very quickly got to in terms of agreeing not to restrict the export of, of products within their own group. We need this at the WTO level. Where um, the issue of the security of supply and essential services comes into play, we went through this with the SARS uh, crisis back in 2003 or whatever it was. And what we then did was we developed uh, a, a national uh, emergency preparedness uh, capacity, which required stocking things like face masks and other things. And guess what? On paper, it was brilliant. In execution, it was lacking. And so when the, the next SARS hit with COVID, we didn't have enough of anything. And we went up scrambling and then blaming trade for what was actually a fault of of, uh, emergency preparedness. Hopefully with, uh, no, vaccines of course are novel and you can't stock up on these. On here, every country, think about Iceland, think about Kenya, think about, you know, Fiji. Everyone depends upon global supply chains to produce things. We cannot replicate in, in, in the 150 or odd countries in the WTO, we cannot replicate a whole supply chain for modern um, medicines. We need to get to a, a, a an agreement globally uh, to have these things produced and to share uh, fairly when a crisis hits. What is remarkable in this particular episode is just how unseemly the rush to capture for each country um, uh, own benefit the uh, the uh, limited supply, and so we have a very uneven sharing of the um, of the vaccines and uh, gloating and recrimination. And what we really need is something like we had in the old NAFTA on energy, which said, in the event that there was to be some sort of emergency then we shall continue to supply our neighbors their fair share, even as we ration ourselves. Now, that I think is something that we need to think about in this particular world and not vaccine nationalism. That's just not going to work. 
You have argued that having a policy that is neutral across sectors is inconsistent with the nature and requirements of different sectors. Having said that, and, and perhaps in light of what you've just said about SARS versus COVID, have governments learned from past failures on industrial policy? I would argue that the past failures of industrial policy were failures of uh, application in an earlier age with very different economic and technological circumstances and characteristics. Those lessons don't apply to the modern world. The technological space is completely different uh, than it was before. For example, we, we are in a world of superstar firms. Um, in the old industrial age, the economies of scale in auto production or any other uh, kind of good tapered out by the time you got to the global marketplace. So we could have, you know, Ford and GM and Chrysler in the States competing with Nissan and uh, Honda and others in uh, Japan competing with Mercedes and BMW in Germany and so forth and Hyundai and Kia in Korea. The economies of scale were small relative to the global marketplace. And so that world enable global competition, global value change to emerge to capture efficiencies. But in the world of data, there's only one Google and there's no global value chain in data. The data is hoovered up and stored on massive uh, server banks at, at headquarters, processed by massive supercomputers in at headquarters, where there's a global value chain of sorts. It's not a value chain. There's, there's a, uh, an ecosystem of small suppliers providing apps, oftentimes almost for free, working for these to populate these app stores, hoping to capture a small slice of that activity. It's a very different world. So to think that um, you know the objective is not for Canada to uh, uh, to get a Google, because we probably won't. We do have a Shopify, um, right? And thanks, for, thank goodness for that. But really, the whole point of industrial policy should be to take the ecosystem of firms that we have and make sure that some of those become the unicorns. Now here, the emphasis I would put on is on, uh, on venture capital. We have a pitiful venture capital uh, uh, sector. It's, um, and a lot of this seems to be purely local in the sense that global venture capital funds are not flowing into Canada to uh, fund the scale up of our companies. I don't know why, in theory, th that should happen. It's not happening. Now, we do know these firms, they're good firms, they're uh, vibrant, they hit a glass ceiling of sorts, and then they stop. And so we, our R&D share of GDP is about one third that of the leading countries, which are Korea and Israel. So we could triple, we could triple our R&D activity with venture capital funds, and but this will have to come from government. And we should not be shy. The United States is pouring now tens of billions. China is pouring hundreds of billions. The Europeans are pouring tens of billions into this space because they recognize that the benefits are there and the government uh, uh, participation is required. So I have argued for a $150 billion uh, Canada uh, innovation bond to finance this. And I point out that would, you know, the, the, the um, uh, Uber in its IPO raised $30 billion. What's one company? One company, and that one company is has got raised the funds to match Canada's R and D in a year. So we, we are woefully short in that space, and we do need government involvement, public sector involvement, not government so much. Uh, 
And uh, I, I think the technological conditions have changed. We need to adapt to them. And I don't think the lessons or the failures of the industrial age actually apply very much here. Daniel, do you think Ottawa understands all this? I, Dan's shaking his head. They do. I think they understand what uh, what Dan is, is, is talking about. I, I, I like Dan, and I'm happy that, let's call it, uh, we have a Shopify. I'm happy that Shopify is around. And I am, you know, very proud that it's a Canadian company and desire to learn and open text and many other Canadian companies in that digital space are growing. In fact, if you look at the Canadian equally weighted, you know, tech stock market uh, since the beginning of the pandemic is grown faster in terms of the share prices than the combined Googles, Facebook, Microsoft, and, you know, Amazon and Netflix and so on. So. You know, we have a, we have a vibrant space, a vibrant uh, tech, tech space in Canada already. And the other thing that I would say is that, um, uh, which doesn't mean that I necessarily disagree with Dan, that this is the space we need to look at, and we need to look at it differently than 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 uh, uh, than in previous industrial ages. Uh, I just I'm just saying let's be let's be careful about applying taking at something, looking at something, applying it like a, oh, this is a tech and it's data oriented and therefore we must help it or, or data is it's, you know, it's raw resource. Let's, let's help it. The other thing I would say is, so we need to think this through uh, almost on a case by case basis. And the other thing that I would say is, you know, with respect to the Googles and the Amazon and so on. Yeah. They're amassing a lot of data, two things about data that, that, that isn't the case with oil. One of them isn't the case with oil. Oil, you cannot take a drop of oil and just reproduce it ad infinitum. It's not the case with data. So, you know, uh, um, I think that what you've seen in the digital space in Canada is, uh, for example, uh, Canadian Tire, uh, a lot of retailers really getting into the same game that Amazon is getting into, for example. You've seen a lot of regional platforms in Asia and elsewhere getting into that same game. So, uh, you know, we're, 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 I'm, I, I, I just worry that, you know, when we say, for example, data is a new oil, I'm not attributing that phrase to Dan necessarily, but that we are thinking already about the old economy and where things couldn't be shared practically for free. And so we have to look a little bit at how we benefit uh, from the service of these companies, our own small firms benefit, our, ourselves as individual and as investors, uh, the CPP has a lot invested in these, in these large companies, you know, to get the whole picture of how we react uh, to them and whether or not uh, we, uh, we either support Canadian champions that oppose or compete with them or that supplement them uh, like, like Shopify um, or whether we really actually uh, get our, our, our brains and our supply chains plugged into what these large firms have to offer so that we create our own, you know, a, a platform for our own firms where we have comparative advantages to, you know, export create good jobs, et cetera. So I, I say leverage rather than compete uh, is a cer certainly an option for our, our industrial strategy in that space. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and your insight today. Thank you. You're most welcome. 
Daniel Schwanen is the Vice President of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Dan Churiak is a Fellow in Residence. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe, March 16th, Building Infrastructure and Creating Jobs. We'll get Ontario's transportation plan for the future from the Honorable Carolyn Mulroney, Minister of Transportation, sponsored by Deloitte. On March 18th, Fighting for You, helping small businesses and workers get through the COVID-19 pandemic with Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the New Democratic Party, sponsored by MasterCard. And on the 23rd, the great demographic reversal, we'll discuss aging societies, waning inequality, and an inflation revival with Charles Goodhart of the London School of Economics and Manoj Pradhan, the founder of Talking Heads Macroeconomics. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.